Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This episode was quite a interesting one for me to want do because it was a normal interview up until about 45 minutes in, and then my guest Michael Fitzgerald uh, drops that he has terminal cancer um, and had been diagnosed with this, said he had a certain amount of time to live, and then we were talking after that certain amount had, had passed already. Uh, so it ended up being a lot longer than normal, um, for my normal podcasts, but really, really, really interesting and hopefully valuable, particularly if you might be going through cancer or if you've had a loved one who is going through cancer at the end, Michael gives some really important information for those people who are suffering from it. Uh, and this interview is definitely, definitely why I am really, really set on doing this podcast for a long time um, and getting this wisdom out because Michael is dealing with something that a lot of us will end up dealing with or will have family members who are dealing with. And it's real and it's uh, important for us to work with this and understand that this this happens to a lot of people. You know, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm not, I'm not old by any means of the word, but I'm getting older and it's obvious that life, uh, changes and life ends. And, uh, so it's personal for me to, to work with these things as well. And with that being said, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, please find us on iTunes and leave a review, um, or just subscribe and you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I, I, I. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and any of the other episodes I do. I uh, hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here today is Michael Fitzgerald. He is the C- CEO and co-founder of Submittable.com, uh, the world's leading cloud-based application and submission management platform. Uh, their software is used by over 9,000 publishers, including the LA Times, New Yorker, Harlequin, MIT, TechCrunch, NPR and Playboy um, and Submittable uh, went through YC uh, and they're now based in Missoula, Montana, and they've been going around going at it for about 10 years. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Really excited to have you on. Um, thanks, Stuart. Excited to be here. Um, we started in Missoula. We went to YC after after we'd been around, been around for like two years. Okay, so you guys had started the company. You'd been been going. How long did you guys were you guys going before you went to YC? Um, about two years, but they, you know, none of us had really quit our day jobs. Maybe one of us had quit our day jobs and we were, we had customers and, and, and revenue, but not, not enough to like call the actual functioning company. And then, uh, and then you went through YC, uh, so this would have been about eight mm-hmm. years ago, correct? Yeah. So that would yeah, have been 2000, two, summer of 2012. Summer of 2012. That's how I know Corel. And that would have that would have been uh, right after Dropbox and Airbnb and those companies went through, right? Yeah, pretty much. Instacart was in our class. Um, Zapier was in our class. Uh, who else? Coinbase, um, uh, Rainforest, QA. Um, there were some there's some pretty big successes out of our class. That's really cool. And what did YC do for you guys in particular? <clears throat> well, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we, um, uh, you know, there isn't sort of a 
startup culture in Missoula. And so we, um, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just trying to figure it out. And um, YC1, you know, I think if I look back on those beginning years, we were sort of in, in, in reaction mode, like trying to um, keep it cheap and keep, our, you know, keep our expenses low and, just, and, and not die. And we got to YC and we sort of reversed our or inversed our ambitions to just be massive, you know, just be a big, go like, don't be scared, get bold, go be something big. And uh, um, that was the biggest um, sort of the rejiggering of our ambitions was the, was the best thing out of Y Combinator. Um, and also just getting a sense of what, what we were up against, like not necessarily that our, our cohort was competitive, like there were another submission management platforms, but just, you know, we were, were, we were older, we were dramatically older than the rest of the, um, we were 40 in our early forties. Then most of the class was 23 or, you know, pretty much straight out of Stanford or MIT. And um, it was good to be around people who, you know, who were so sort of bold and ambitious and um, it made us think about what we're up against. Huh. Um, so yeah, it was great. And that's a really my co my go for my, my co-founder is probably have a slightly different hmm. opinion on it, but we did move from our families. Like we're all functioning adults with families and mortgages, and we picked up and moved to Mountain View for three months with your family. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, um, they were here, and uh, so it you know it wasn't effortless. Uh-huh. Um, and put the strains on parts of, you know, parts of our family. Yeah. And this is so interesting because you guys uh, got such a unique story compared to the other, the other YC companies. Cause you, and then you go back to Montana um, and, and you, uh, you, you uh, start this company here and how, and you, you said you had a hundred employees now. I think we're at 109. Yeah. 109. Um, and when you got back from YC, how many employees did you have? Uh, four. Wow. I mean, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. There was three founders and one employee. Yeah. So four total. But we did, we, we got that to about 12 by the end within like three months of Y Combinator. Um, and yeah. And that's really interesting. So, and then, and then what has, what have the, been the key takeaways you've learned from building a company of, you know, more than 50 people outside of Silicon Valley? Um, you know, hiring isn't, isn't, isn't effortless. Like, um, it, you got to find this, you know, it's a particular kind of person that wants to live in Missoula, Montana. I don't know why anybody doesn't want it, but, um, <laughs> it's for a long time, you know, people have, have preconceived notions of Ted Kaczynski, you know, all like the ridiculous media stuff, but, um, or like conservative, you know, everyone thinks we're Trump people when our governor's Democrat and, Missoula, I mean, Butte is one of the most labor-friendly, union-friendly cities in the world. Hmm. Um, and um, so it's, it, it, you know, people, for them to move here, I mean, it's getting easier. We now have sushi and haircuts and crap. But um, 10 years ago or 30 years ago, um, you know, it was a pretty, it was a, it was, it was a pretty big commitment to, to live someplace like here. There weren't jobs. There weren't, um, um, there, was, there wasn't a lot of stuff that you have in big cities. <laughs> so be hiring people. 
um, especially experts, especially like upper level senior management type people. Um, we had to figure out a specific way of hiring them and that took a while. Um, and, but once we figured it out, it, it was, it's been amazing. Mm. And what was that um, the big lesson? What was the lesson? The, uh, the big one is, mm-hmm. so, so the, the primary problem with hiring anybody over like 35 was, and we were making offers and we'd get people, we'd fly them up and they'd mm-hmm. love it and everything was great. And then they'd go home to their spouse. And usually you marry somebody or partner somebody with, with similar ambitions, right? So um, you might be an amazing marketing executive and then your husband, you know, whatever, he's, he's a doctor or whatever he does, but um, they have the same, um, they generally have a career, right? So getting them to move to Montana, like you could usually get somebody 90% of the way there, but then when they got into the details of like, can my spouse quit? his job can my kids you know you could only hire them during the summer because their kids were gonna, were gonna have to leave schools um that kind of stuff just started to trip us up over and over again we kept getting people all the like almost there mm. and then what we found out was we should focus on people who actually had a history with montana so we went and started looking at people who graduated from high school here and then we'd look on linkedin to see if so we searched linkedin for high school hellgate high school the local high school um, and then look and see, try to find people um, with director or above titles and reach out to them and be like, hey, you know, like generally they're, um, you know, they have 20, 25 years of work experience and reach out to them and say, I have a job for you in your hometown. And those have been much more successful. Um, we've gotten amazing candidates from that. And, um, our CMO was at Disney for 25 years, 20 years, and um, McKinsey, she was in the CIA as well. And we have a VP from Oracle. Um, we just hired a CTO from Microsoft. So once you find, you know, you find your message and you find your, your path, then you can push, push on the gas. And, and that's, so, that's so interesting because it's like, uh, I, I find the, the thing I, I'm, I love about entrepreneurship and, and creating company is that there are no rules to it there might be principles to it um but there are no rules yeah and so it's like you just you just have to figure it out for your specific case and it's always so subjective and so defined basically on on your particular case and i love that (laughs) you just find people who have lived in montana before and then it's it's super easy because i mean i i'm looking at the map right now of missoula Missoula seems to be square <laughs> right in the middle of um, four forests. And then there's a, a creek running through it as well. And I think I remember talking to a fly fishing guide that said that you can actually fly fish um, on the river that goes right into town as well. Um, is that, is you that could right? fly fish a block, a, a block from our office. <laughs> That's okay. um, you can surf the block from our office. And there's skiing um, by the way the bird flies seven miles but it's 15 miles and there's a national forest the bitterroot um uh national forest is three miles from our office so um you could literally be camping or you know um and we can see elk from our there's two mountains that are in the distance and during the season you can see the elk moving over onto the mountains and um so it's you know like we're definitely in it where it's a Montana company. Mm. 
And that, that's okay. So I really want to talk to you about remote work because before we started recording, you were talking that you said you only had about uh, three, uh, three to six employees, something around that that were that were remote. Mm -hmm. Most of the people are are there in Montana, and that seems to be something you want to keep at, as you're growing. Correct? Yeah, our original goal was, you know, one of the things we were trying to do when we started was build. Um, my partners and I, I had worked at. At companies outside of Montana, I worked for a company called ProClarity in Boise. They got bought, bought by Microsoft, and then I worked for Microsoft, um, and uh, and I'd worked in San Francisco in the '90s. So my partner and Bruce, he had worked at Borland, and also had a similar history. Um, he had lived in California before Montana, and um, we wanted to build a company that had the kind of jobs that we wanted. Right. So we wanted to build a 500 person company that kept the smartest kids here, that um, allowed for career type trajectories that um, and that was our goal. It wasn't really start a company. It wasn't. That was our goal. And, um, and that's that's still sort of our North Star mm -hmm. um, to build a functioning company that um, has great jobs and in Montana. the whole range. Yeah. In Montana, yeah. And um, we even the even yeah. the rem the remote workers that we have, we didn't hire them because they were remote. We hired them generally, like over half of them are people who started here. Maybe they were right out of school, and we were their first job, and we let them keep the job when they moved. You know, they they had plans on moving for whatever reason, family reasons, but it wasn't it wasn't like we're trying to create a remote workforce or anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what is your what is your take on remote work, uh, whether for or against or nuanced? Um, you know, I've done it myself. So, you know, developers are way developers have been doing it for twenty years. So, um, it's great. I mean, it it it's hard to do people management from my point of view. You know, there's challenges with senior like manager type people being remote, but um, you know, everyone figures it out and. Uh, you know, so much Zoom, Slack, like all these tools are basically built to fix remote. Um, it's no coincidence that they're all blowing up right now. Mm. So I'm for it. Um, you know, I would, I'd be fine, especially as like technical individual contributor roles. Um, but, but our goal is to build a company in Montana. And that's really interesting because I've heard in San Francisco a similar thing is happening. So it used to be the way in San Francisco that, or it wasn't even in San Francisco, it was in Silicon Valley. You grow to like 10,000 employees in Silicon Valley. Uh, and then once you're past that 10,000 or whatever point, a high number, then you go off and set off headquarters in other, other countries and everything like that. But even within Silicon Valley, that's now changing. Uh, to the point where you maybe get to 400 employees and then you start to build those HQs in other places. Um, and so it seems, yeah. and that's what I love about what you guys are, because you guys just went, you did that, but in Missoula. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't, there's just certain positions you can't do in Silicon Valley anymore, like SDRs or, you know, most entry level positions that, you know, right out of college, jobs you got to pay people a hundred thousand dollars i mean i think it was peter thiel that said like all the vc money is basically going to right. landlords and and, and and 
Google AdWords, but um, but you know they just might as well write the check directly to the landlord. But uh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't like it's great for fundraising because you know the VCs are all just in South Park or Sand Hill Road, and then, but it's other than that, I don't. There's too many like lateral options. Like your developer, no one's loyal. You know, there's no way to get legacy knowledge within an app unless you get massive very quickly. Mm. And that's just not a model. I don't know. It's just a very specific kind of model. Mm. And uh, I, I have an important question I want to ask you after this. But but uh, this uh, did you guys raise money right after YC? We did. Yeah, uh, we raised. Uh, I think around seven hundred thousand. Uh-huh. And then have you guys raised money since? Yeah. We have. We raised uh, 17. We just closed the $10 million Series B. Wow. Cool. You know, and, and that's, that's been another great thing is, is um, demonstrating you can do it here. You know, like I think one of the things I love is when employees quit job, quit, quit to start their own company, right? Like I think, um, I think there's a lot of value in just people seeing it being done, especially by somebody like myself and my co-founders who, you know, I think we're pretty average people. And there's just, you look at that person and be like, Oh, that idiot can do it. I can. And we're seeing that now we're seeing people start companies left and right and IP, you know, college towns, basically places where you can get, um, you can hire well. And, uh, um, I think raising capital, was like the last thing that you couldn't do here and now you can do it. Huh. And, and are, are you talking about specifically people are now starting companies in Missoula or, or kind of in this? Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So if you look at Missoula, I mean, when we started, there were, I don't remember any other, there was a company called remote scan that got bought by Dell and that was four people. Um, and that was a cool, those guys were amazing. But uh, other than that, there weren't real success stories. Right now, Technologies came out of Bozeman. That was the first billion-dollar company. But there's a funny story that when uh, when the local paper wrote about the sale of Right Now Technologies, um, they got bought by Oracle for like a 1.6 billion, I think. Hmm. The local paper said, you know, um, software concern, local software concern, sells to Oracle for 1.6 million dollars because it was sort of inconceivable that somebody was building a billion dollar company, right? Hmm. In Montana. And, uh, and now there's, you know, it's just in the water, like class, also class pass, do you know, class pass? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. They, they moved here. They have a two they're I think they're up to around 150, but their goal is 200 employees in Missoula. Um, they have a high touch sort of sales process, you know, calling, yoga studios in and but it's not a sales it's not like a commission-based sales i don't know the actual model but but it's not like they're selling enterprise software they're just trying to get you people like studios to use their software right and uh and so they couldn't afford to do that with in new york city i mean i I, i'm projecting here i have no idea why exactly they moved here but Mm -hmm. this is my assumption is that the jobs that they're filling here are sort of um sales, entry level, uh, you know, awesome experience, um, jobs. That was their original goal. I know they are hiring developers here now too, but none of that, like those jobs didn't exist at all five years ago. 
And, and then there's companies that are starting here, Onyx Maps, which raised a $20 million Series B. Mm. I mean, Series A, sorry. Mm. Um, it might even be 23, but like Missoula, Montana, first money in, $23 million. Did they go to San Francisco to raise that money or did they actually raise it all from, who, who, who are they raising this money from? If Summit, know. I think, because the main, uh-huh. the Summit Ventures was the main investor. Mm. And True Ventures led our Series A. So we're getting, you can get Silicon Valley. I mean, True, I think one of their models is exclusively outside of Valley. Like I know they they invest in Minnesota. I think they have investments in Scandinavia. Um, they seem to have at least some component that is exclusively looking for things outside the Valley. Yep. Very interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, you just can't, you can't do sales anymore in, in San Francisco. Like you can't have, you know, a low um, base with a commission-based sales because how do you pay someone forty-five dollars or $50,000 base in San Francisco? Like what, they're just going to be homeless? Like what? Uh, yeah. That's um, so it's really been a, it ended up working out really well for us that we could go and get, um, uh, grow slowly enough, grow organically enough, and also just not be like 100% about the tech. Like, you know, we have a 30-person sales sales team, and, um, and that's uh, a lot of them it was, had never done it before. So, you know, there has to be a little bit longer learning curve or onboarding curve and you just can't afford to do that in places like San Jose. Mm. That's really I mean they say the average deal the average deal size for enterprise software in the valley, you have to get them to an average uh, um, average price of twenty K. Right? Like you can't afford a salesperson unless they can sell something worth twenty K. And the only people and, who do that are people with experience. And the only people who can do that are people with experience and, and just, you know, the, the web wants to be thin and wide, right? Like even if you're building SaaS, um, it wants to have as many customers as, as possible versus one specific 200, you know, $1,000 customer a week. Um, and so, yeah, so it's been really, it, it's really played well to, what we were hoping to do. And so now I want to take it back to something you said originally or in the, in the first 15 minutes was the North star for your company was to build a company in uh, Montana in, in a place where they could create jobs for people from Montana. Um, and what, how does one particularly an entrepreneur find their North star? Um, that's a great question because it, 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 I don't know. Mm. And I struggle with this. I mean, um, you know, you look at like Tom's shoes, is that, is that the shoe company or, you know, these B Corps and, um, well, I mean, let's just roll it back to like Facebook and Google. Don't be evil, make everything more open. I mean, come on. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg's like the most private motherfucker on earth right like, yeah. and he's in charge of our privacy or he's in charge of like his business model is to make people like give up their privacy and um 
anyway, I'm being cynical right now. It's not, but, but I think about this, like these vision statements and these, and, you know, do we want to democratize submission management? Do we want to democratize publishing, which it was in the beginning? Sort of. Um, but mostly I want to create a company that uh, has awesome employees, that creates, like, gives people autonomy, that gives people lives that they can feel secure with and have families. And I mean, that to me is the most gratifying mm. um, part about building a company. I mean, I like, I like making users happy and I like love people having a better life is, you know, something you make, but um, I don't know, I guess. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm rambling. Well, it's, no, it's the, the North star question. Go yeah. On. Yeah. This is the, this is something I'm trying to come to terms with myself. So I, uh, I'll just be honest here. I deal with uh, a lot of uh, chronic pain every day and that is really difficult. And every time I get in a chronic pain loop, it's like, it's all, it starts to become kind of all about me. And I become very like, just like you know, life sucks. I get in, the, in this kind of uh, victim mentality. And so I've been working with coaches is essentially how to develop a North star uh, so that the, the, the pain just becomes small in comparison to this much larger thing um, that I'm, that I'm working towards. And so it's actually very, yeah. Current Cause I'm, 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 I worked with a coach today and uh, uh, the, the biggest thing that came up was um, a devotion being of service to something larger to myself. Um, and, uh, and that service for me is, is I see a global contraction happening uh, in, in, in the world. And, you know, I see rise of nationalism, a rise of uh, all these kind of things that are going to um, kind of could be potentially dangerous. And so what I want to do is network the open-minded people of the world and major urban centers together so that they can, um, so that, that, because before when this nationalism, this tide of nationalism happened before, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have this kind of global connection that we now have possible. And I feel that's the one thing that can kind of um, help us to prevent a world conflict is in, uh, uh, and that's, that's, so now I'm seeing that as my North Star. And so now with the chronic pain, when I look at that, and that's big, and then I look at the chronic pain that's small comparison to that. So it's like helps me gain perspective on 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 what it is I need to be spending right. my time to and what it is that I need to be focused on. So that that's but that's for my personal North Star, which I guess could go into a company as well. But but um but yeah, that's that's for me for personally. So I'm I'm really curious to hear other people what, what how do they find their north star? And maybe you know this is a call for the audience. How do you find your north star? How maybe you can reach out and um, let me know how you've done that. Um, but yeah, would anything come up? Yeah, from- uh, sorry, that's really great. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that like something that makes it so that you can do incremental progress towards it. Um, I like 500 employees because it's a count, right? Uh, but um, my employees probably aren't like thrilled that that's our North Star. Like they, they want to, you know, they want one of these big vision statements and, or some of them do, I don't know. Um, and I, I, I really, you know, my vision is that people get paid uh, and have great lives. Um, and you can't, I mean, it sounds really trite or something compared to make the world a more open place. Um, but I don't think it's trite when you actually scratch below the surface like this is, I sincerely want to create awesome jobs and I'm not going to fake a business model that regard that, that 
depends on everybody in the world giving up their privacy. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like TechCrunch and sort of the whole entrepreneur cult or cult of entrepreneurs sometimes um, sort of facilitates these things that are just not, like, look at WeWork, right? Like, look at all this stuff. It's crazy. And like, it should just be focused on actually functioning businesses. Um, and awesome, I don't know. That's like such a dumb news. My, my North Star is a functioning business. And and that's really interesting because that brings it back down to a just a normal like, you know, giving people an opportunity to make money so that they can eat and provide for their family. That is like a hugely valuable service in for those 106 employees that you that that you guys hire. And and like uh, because that's the thing with Silicon Valley, it always you always have to go big. Uh, and, And and in that going big. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You make a little tiny change in one person's life. Um, uh, but then, but then like, what about like, this is something I've learned over the past seven years is making a large change in an individual's life in one individual's life is just as valuable. Um, you know, and then it gets into comparison. I don't even know if that's a good idea to compare this like one person, but if, if, you know, like if, somebody decided to make an intervention in a life in the, in a kid growing up in poverty um, and they made an intervention by working with that one kid for two, three hours a week um, to kind of instill some values as to how to, how to work in this world and, and kind of instill those, those things that are necessary in order to deal with people who do have money. Um, and so that they can kind of see themselves entering that, that realm and then pull themselves out. Like that is a huge service. Um, but that is looked down on in, in Silicon Valley. It's not really even considered as like, oh, but that's just such a small thing. But it's not. It's a huge thing, particularly if you don't, if you don't localize yourself to this time. If you look inside of that person's life, and then if you make an intervention in their life, a significant intervention in their life, that also goes down to their children, anybody they deal with. So it's like, it's it's. It, it, I love that that we're having cascading, and and that's right. If you save one person's life. You, you, and that person has a family or supports their family, and she also influences, you know, 20 people around her. Um, it's, and you do it in a deep way. It's, it's, it's something. It's not. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know. You know, this, I, like we're going big. We're, we're just not. We're. I just don't need to have some fake sort of vision statement to do it I think my hope is that's cool and we're just building we're just building something that people we know use and 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 hopefully pay for um well they do pay for it but uh you know like a real straightforward transaction like you need this we want to build it for you and charge you this and and ideally everyone's pretty happy um yeah and so let's get into the product a little bit more. What, what do you guys do exactly? So Submittable, it facilitates the ability to accept and review and make a decision on anything. So the original use case was publishers. Um, before we started the company, I was a novelist. I always paid the bills by writing code, but I um, published a novel in 2007. And um, the goal coming out of college was I wanted to be a, I wanted to be, a, you know, I envisioned myself sitting in my basement and writing novels. Uh, 
once I actually got some success with it, I had to sort of recalibrate. Um, namely, publishing is under duress. You know, suddenly information's everywhere, and there's only 24 hours in a day. How much, you know, people aren't reading as many books. I actually don't know if that's true, but um, but publishing is under duress, right? And uh, so going through the publishing process, I had submitted my manuscript to agents, to magazines, to big publishers, and I had noticed that it was a sort of hodgepodge of, of different processes. Some people still took mail envelopes, some people had a Dropbox sort of thing, like a hokey version of, um, you know, a self-made version of Submittable. Um, some people have these massive enterprise systems put out by, um, uh, I can't remember, Scholastic, I can't remember which company, but but there were all these different ways of doing the exact same thing. So we thought we should just build sort of the common app for, submit, for, for submitting manuscripts. And we did, and it took off in terms of volume. So we quickly, pretty much every university, tons of independent publishers um, started using it. And that was great, except they were, um, they were amazing customers in terms of like feedback. They're all highly educated, like super, you know, interesting. They're, 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 they're creating opportunities to, to, to do this thing that I love, which is make books. Um, and so I love the whole space. I loved all the people in it. The problem was they're broke. There's no like having poetry journals as your customers is really not a great business. Um, and you don't really run into that until you start hiring people. So once we started hiring people, it really made me look harder at the business and, um, and, 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 you know, decide whether we could actually make a business off publishing. And we decided we, there was a lot bigger opportunities. And especially if we were going to grow the company, um, we moved into all these other verticals, such as user generated content. Uh, so you can imagine um, we have large brands that use us for accepting um, three to four minute videos. They'll run a commercial. They'll, they'll like say, we're going to make a commercial around togetherness and send us your two to three minute video. And if we use it for a commercial, we pay you $20,000 or something. And um, that, like those use cases have exploded. Um, anybody who wants to interact with large media files, um, the, so our, our application works with, it's got a form builder, you know, a very tricked out form builder, but it's also, it works with over 75 files. It'll take these files and transcode them so that the end user, the organization accepting either the video or the document don't have to download it and they can be, see it in the browser. And that's really, that was what made it take off in publishing. People were start, first starting to work around with their iPads. And the, the original iPad didn't have Word on it. You couldn't put Microsoft's Office on the original iPad. And so we were giving them a way to, to view the, uh, somebody submit the Word document on the publisher side. They get, uh, they can, they, they get, we transcode it into a PDF or into HTML5 and they can view it in the browser. And that um, was what originally took off. And we now do that with 75 different file types. So, um, yeah grant applications, admissions at universities, like any big uh, submit and, and review process. And so that's really interesting because that, so in your customer is essentially that uh, the end user who gets all these documents, gets all these videos sent to them, 
uh, in the in a yeah. format to lead, and then they uh, when they pay make payments to that person, do you guys get out of that? Yeah. So if they use there's a payment module, and they can add payment to anything, and if they do, um, we act as the credit card processor. Um, the but the the majority of our revenue is SaaS revenue, so the organization is accepting. Um, and we now have over 10,000 clients at any given time. There's over 8,000 what we call opportunities, meaning an organization making opportunity. And then on the back end, I mean, if you think about a form builder like Typeform or something, like those are pretty, um, Typeform is just a better, a better Google Forms, right? Or it's like next generation Wufu. And but what those applications do is take data and make it data. So it's great for things like lead gen or like quick surveys, but there's so many use cases where you're submitting to a form and what the process is, isn't about aggregating all the submissions and getting, figuring out, I don't know, some metric around them. It's actually reviewing the, the, the data in the submission or it's reviewing a, a file on the submission. And so once the submission comes in, there's all these tricked out features where you can auto assign, like if, if they choose, um, you know, X auto assign it to team Y. If they choose Y in the form, like, like let's say, uh, let's say a VC is using us for accepting pitches. They, um, and I, and then one of their questions is, are you a B2B, are you SaaS, are you B2C, whatever. And if you choose B2C, your review process will go through a different process than if you're a B2B. So a B2B, um, application would automatically go to the B2B partners. A B2C application would automatically go to the um, consumer partners. And so it facilitates that kind of business logic and just everything that happens after. Like form builders are really about the form itself and the data after and submittable is about the review process, process and um, multiple people going in. You can put contextual reviews like thumbs up, thumbs down or rank things based on well, let's stick with the VC application, like one to 10 founder, you know, rank, rank the founders, two to three, you know, one to 10 industry knowledge, one to 10 presentation of the deck, whatever. You can, you can, you can contextually rank everything that's coming in based on whatever logic you want. Um, and so that's the real, that's the value. That's really interesting. Um, are you guys starting to use AI at all in, in how you work with that data? Yeah, we are. Um, one, the, the, um, the place where it's implemented right now is we have something called Discover. So if you a lot of these organizations will create these opportunities. So say you got 8,000 opportunities, everything from granting or academic research opportunities to scholarships to film festivals to manuscripts and um if you are logged in as a submittable user as a submitter so if you've submitted to magazine a but you haven't submitted to magazine b but we it looks and sees like well um uh somebody else who had success at magazine a, a also submitted to magazine b um and we see that relationship um there's tool there's there's ai back there that's doing well everyone calls it ai but i don't know this relational logic, right? Uh, that tells, you know, we'll poke um, submit the, the original submitter and be like, hey, you haven't submitted to this magazine, but it, it, we think it's a good fit. So we're starting to do more and more of that, of, of sort of a recommendation engine within Discovery to help our 
clients um, get more content, get more submissions, get more like focused and contextually correct submissions. Like if I'm a fly fishing guy, a fly fishing writer, I shouldn't be submitting to magazines about um, goat milk or something, right? So, um, so we're getting the right people to the right opportunities. And then on the other end, um, we're starting to add AI if organizations want to like um, pre-identify things based on well, you can go with publishing still. Like it'll rip rip a document apart and start to look at like sentence structure, grade level of sentences, stuff like that. Um, we haven't introduced this into the main product yet, but uh, that's where we're going. That is uh, very interesting. So I'd love to take uh, the remaining time and, and have a, a conversation about creativity because it sounds like you're very creative uh, and you, you've got this creativity. You said you write novels. Do you still write? I do. I have a second book called Start Down, which it's about five years late from when I planned on finishing it. But um, it's mostly about starting a company in the middle of nowhere uh, and just sort of the trials and tribulations. But um, but I stopped writing novels, novels, and the, the, I think, um, I don't believe in this left brain, right brain thing. I think everybody, I mean, one of the things you get, one of the things that I, struck me as I got older is, uh, pretty much everybody's capable of everything. Like, you know, there's a ton of smart people in the world and Silicon Valley is all about smarts. And, but, um, at the end of the day, like I also think the internet has just made smarts less of a commodity or more of a commodity and less of a um, special thing because we can kind of look everything up. I can go home tonight and research how to build a garden. You know, like everything, all information is, is sort of accessible. So smarts themselves have become less important and and I I truly believe pretty much everybody is capable of everything. So uh, I think when I look back, like writing a novel, it, it didn't feel like a creative exercise to me. It felt like I sit down and keep your butt in the chair and keep writing until you're done exercise. And, and I, I, I like the, the special moments where when you go into the shower and you're like thinking about a character and you're sort of, your mind has to actually like get out of your reality and, um, truly actualize what that character is. And, and those, like when you're doing something like writing a novel or some big creative undertaking, like that, those little, like you need to be thinking about it all the time. Like it needs to be rolling around in your head. Even if you're not conscious of it, it needs to like stuff needs to be germinating. And my biggest problem with writing after I started the company is that germination stuff started happening about the company. When I'm in the shower now, I think about the company. I don't think about a scene in a book. And, um, and, it, and a lot of it is the same muscle. Like you're making something out of nothing. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't have, I, uh, so much of writing a novel was useful for starting a company. Just Sticking with it, showing up when no one asked you to not worrying about whatever. I mean, you know, if you tell people you're writing a novel, <laughs> you know, it's awkward. It's like starting a company, like tell people you're starting a company, then, you know, it's just so easy for everyone to dismiss everything. And, yeah. 
That's uh, anyway. Well, in the, the, it's funny because I was about to ask you the question: What is the difference between creativity and business, and what is the crea- difference in creativity in the arts? And I think you already gave that a very good answer. But I wanted to touch on something you said, which is uh, I, this is why I love doing the podcast because I was just in the forest for three days and I was reading this book, uh, the Book of Why. Uh, it's by a, uh, a artificial intelligence um, uh, professor who discovered how to model causal relationships uh, and and has now been offering that to the uh, to uh, building models of artificial intelligence in the way that that bases things off of causal models uh, and if you can bring some if you and like this this is a no-go in 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 academics for the last seven years they're like correlation does not equal causation we cannot talk about causation causation is something that is beyond the means of science uh, and now with this, they're actually like, no, we can't actually get to the causality for some things. Uh, and what she talks about, or what he talks <laughs> about, is the, is the uh, there's a ladder of causality. Uh, and it goes to Yuval Harari's uh, point of um, essentially what separates us human beings from other animals, uh, and even our forefathers, our ancestors, before they started to uh, uh, create stories and, and imagine is that we can imagine things and engineer things. Like that's our special. Right. And so the the ladder of causality uh, is first first rung is associations and that's correlations and that's as far as we've gotten in science right now uh, until the last twenty five years uh, and then we've got the ladder two which is um, doing uh, so first is seeing second is doing and third is imagining uh, imagining worlds that don't exist um, and so they 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 use uh, counterfactuals for this where they say so this you know this question of why is basically a question of um, of why did something happen and why did something else not happen in, 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 in place of that uh, and developing stories and imagination. And that's something that's very specifically human beings. Um, and uh, I forget what brought this up, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but oh, we were talking about creativity versus right. business or uh, yeah. And that's, and it's this, that's what, yeah, exactly. You started using your imagination more for the business uh, going into the shower thoughts and having that germination happen around the business as well, which is fun because that, that's something that I've also, you know, could, the reason I started this show was that and specifically focused it on the relationship between creativity and stress for a long time was people told me that I was creative and I had no idea what that meant. Um, and so I was yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go interview other people about creativity. And most people assign creativity to this art sense. Like I was just inter- interviewing an AI engineer last week and they, they were like, oh, I'm not creative. I, I, I don't. I don't do art, um, yeah. but it's like you do, you, you're, you're creating these things and, and that there is art to that. And like, that's, but that's the fundamental thing. Oh, the, here it is. Artif- so as artificial intelligence goes up that ladder of causation, now that they've figured out how to do it, we as human beings, our job will go further and further up that ladder of causation more to meta things. So things that are higher and higher asking questions basically. So, Oh yeah. yeah. That's, you said, you said, uh, in smarts is just a commodity now. And that I believe is true. And so imagination is the thing where, uh, where we as human beings can really kind of, that's the, that's the gold standard that, that, uh, artificial intelligence seems very, very far away from. I agree. The, the, I mean, absolutely. The humans are different than dogs and that they can imagine a future that they, or they can imagine something that doesn't exist, um, off in the future and, and then build towards it. Right. Um, that seems to be the, the, the difference. But and I completely agree that creativity has, 
been like co-opted by artists. I mean, we all used to be artists. Everyone was building everything. Everyone made everything. Um, and now you're only allowed to be creative if you're a poet or a novelist. Like that's crazy. Uh, the, and you're, you know, we're told at such an early age, like your right brain, your left brain, like that is totally just some framework like that Lords came up with to like chill people out and not, not, you know, make it easy to put people into, into sockets, right? Like if, if you're good at math, then I, then, then here's your career and here's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, um, and we're telling people at 17 that that's the way it is. It's nuts. Uh, I don't, I don't believe it at all. I, I don't, I don't buy this left brain. I think everybody can learn everything. And I think um, uh, society tells them very early that they're good at bad at stuff and we, and they listen and it's awful. And that's another point that you mentioned I want to talk about the adaptive adaptability because that that is what our brains are designed to do is adapt us to different situations and we've got this weird civilization that kind of puts us into these ruts where we're like okay no no this is what I'm doing this is what I'm good at this is I'm going to specialize in this and everything else I'm just going to forget about but our our body is our right. bodies and our brains are meant to be stressed and stimulated in novel ways so that we can learn how to solve novel problems um, and so that is something that's really interesting for me. Right. I mean, the, the one, the example that comes up most recently is going off into nature and sleeping in the forest alone, uh, which is something that was like really, really uh, uh, challenging and almost like psychedelic in a sense the first few times I did it. Yeah. Now is becoming more and more just normal. So it's no problem sleeping on the floor. It's no problem like w sleeping under the stars. It's no problem like thinking about all the you know animals. It's just, it's, I've adapted to it. And, and we as a species are, are like, seem to have lost that adapt, adaptability. We kind of create these thought palaces where it's like, oh, okay, that's, that's, I feel safe and comfortable here. So this is all I need to be doing. And this is just fine. Cause I'm not, you know, it's, and it, it yeah, it's particularly for starting a business. Maybe this is a question for you. Yeah. Uh, Cause you've, you know, you've been running a business now for 10 years. Would you be doing anything else? Like, why do you love doing this? Um, well, one, it was, you know, it's super gratifying to, to be able to basically hire people you want to be around, right? Like, you know, we, we put a huge emphasis on, um, coming to work should be an engaging, interesting thing. You know, like you should be sitting next to people who you're curious about. You should learn stuff. Um, and, and I, that's like the bar of who I hire, like is, is this going to be, am I going to learn from this person? Is this going to be challenging? Am I going to find, you know, and, um, so, uh, I got lost. Um, what was I saying? Oh, the fun of, what, what would I do if I wasn't running a business? Yeah, I would, I would start another one as soon as, if, if this was taken away from me tomorrow, I would, um, start another one. It'd probably be around cancer because I got cancer, but, um, but, but not, but mostly because I just, I, there's something out there I want. I want, I want a product that's specific to my cancer. And so I know 130,000 other people a year get diagnosed with a similar, um, um, has a similar di diagnosis as me. And so I would just go build something I wanted. Hopefully 130,000 other people a year would find it useful and maybe save their lives. Are you comfortable talking more about that? Like the cancer? Sure. Yeah. What, what type of cancer was it? Uh, uh, I have stage four colon cancer and it's metastated. I was diagnosed in 2017, actually the day after we raised our series A. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I I had to call our um, I had to call the lead on that round, which was True Ventures, and I had no idea I was running marathons. I I didn't feel sick, and I went in for a colonoscopy after. Um, uh, well, I was getting up there in age, and um, I woke up, and they told me I had six to eight months to live. Mm. And so, so I had to call the investors, and I mean, unbelievable, but they they were incredible. They just said, don't worry about it. I mean, it was the day after the money came into the bank. They said, go figure this out. Um, and, you know, like, we'll take care of everything else. And, 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 and that's what I did. I got on a plane. I flew to a bunch of NCI cancer clinics, ended up at Sloan Kettering in New York, and found an incredible person named Dr. Kemeny, uh, Nancy Kemeny. And, um, I am not out of the woods yet, but I'm not dead. And, um, and yeah. And do you have a specific product in mind for that? Um, so I have something called heypump.com, which is, so the, the, the disease that I have is colon cancer is if it's found at stage one and even stage two, it's like 99% curable. Mm. Like all they, it's just surgical. They go in, they cut it out and your colon, you've got like an extra 20 feet of your colon. So, um, you've got, you, you can, you can remove parts of it. Um, if it metastasizes, it usually goes to the liver and then the lungs. But once it gets to the liver, historically, there's been a huge problem because your liver is, um, the goal of the liver is to dilute toxins. So when you introduce chemo, systemic chemo, chemo meaning full body chemo, it works on most of the organs. Um, it does not work on your liver because your liver gets it and just dilutes it. Right? So, um, so historically, once you were once once the cancer got to your liver, it was pretty much game over. Um, and so. This woman, uh, Dr. Kemeny, in the when she was a young physician in the late 80s, early 90s, she knew that the problem was the liver. It wasn't the colon itself. You had to fix the liver. And um, I don't know what else she was trying, but she heard about this thing called the Codman pump. And the Codman pump is was was um, devised in the 70s and 80s, um, and it was originally used as a pain uh, medication delivery mechanism. So when you had, like, you, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they started doing, um, uh, um, they could replace, like, your hip. They could start, they, they were starting to, like, put in mechanical um, replacements into your body. They could fuse your spine together. And, and it was working, but everybody had chronic pain. And you couldn't give them opioids because they were just, well, they'd become dope heads. And you couldn't send them home with needles so that they could do it localized because then you got people walking around with needles. So someone came up with this thing. You could put it. Um, it's a it's a it's a puck. It's a titanium puck. It's got two elastic uh, chambers. One is filled with air, and one is filled with medicine. And every two weeks, they would fill the medicine one, and there's a catheter directly to the the area in your body that that was in pain, like let's say your spine. And the catheter was attached to that area, and your body temperature would it would dramatically ex- would would slowly expand the um, the chamber with oxygen and slowly push out the medicine, but in a, in a measured way, because you could, you could figure out the physics if your body temperature is 98.7. Um, you could figure out how to have it like drip two to three milligrams a day or something or whatever the, 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 the calculation was. And 
And then they would just stick a needle inside you. It has like a little rubber top, like a pencil eraser and fill it up um, every two weeks instead of every day. And then you had this constant drip of, of, of pain relief directly. And she saw that and said, that's what we need to deliver. We mm. need that to deliver chemo. Whoa. Right. So she, yeah, huge jump. Awesome jump. And so she, at the time, if it was, if you had gotten, if you had gotten cancer to your liver, you had a 5% survival rate. And even now, even in, when I first got it, it was 11%. She has people at 68%. So she, so the, the, the average American Cancer Society, this year they upgraded it to 14%. So things are definitely changing. And it still sounds miserable, 14% live for five years. But by adding just another 4%, it was at 11 or 3%, it was at 11%. You're still talking about like 10,000 people a year are surviving something that used to kill them. So um, she started that with medical um, results. You really, she was seeing things in the day-to-day office, but you, you, you need a five-year cohort to call it a, like to call out the actual number. And her first iteration, um, you know, she probably didn't see dramatic results, but even if she doubled it, so she got them to 10%, it probably felt pretty good. And she slowly just um, iterated on both dosage, on best chemo, other things have come on board, like we now get steroids in our chemo. And, you know, you've got, she's got people who, um, you go into her, 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 uh, her waiting room and it's a profound place. She has people from all over the world. But I've talked to people who are 10, 15 years out, and they said when they started, you know, everyone was sick, everyone was bald, everyone was gray, everyone was under blankets, everyone was like at death's door. And now you go in there and it's like a dentist's office. Um, you know, people are still in a shitload of trouble and, and a lot of us die, but, um, but she's got people walking around and I'm, I'm running a company and I have stage four colon cancer, terminal disease, mm-hmm. right? Like unbelievable. And you're using this product, um, product is helping you. Uh, uh, it's basically increased your life, your life um, uh, uh, enjoyment or life ability. It's better than being dead, you know. So, you know, they, I was I should have been dead. And what it does, it so they so um, they implanted this thing. They cut out the original tumor. They ripped out a bunch of lymph nodes, so it had spread pretty far, but they surgically did as much as they could. And then they install this, this, this puck, and it's a 10-hour surgery. It's not a joke. And then every two weeks, they fill it with chemo, and it just does a drip directly to my, to my liver. My liver, when I was diagnosed, was covered in had 22-plus um, lesions, and they got it just by being able to do targeted chemo. They got it down to five. And your liver is amazing because it, it's the only it's the only organ that can regenerate, right? Like you can cut your liver in half and it'll grow back. And there's no what's crazy is there's no physiological reason behind that until 2015. Like when we were in the caves, if something was gnawing on our liver, like that, like there was no growing. There's no growing your liver back when you're a cave person. Mm. So it's kind of wild that it exists. Like why does the liver regenerate? Mm. Um, in any case, the, the goal is to get you to a resection. Surgery and radiation are really the only true, quote-unquote, cures. Um, so what they try to do is get you to a liver resection, clear all the disease off your liver, 
through surgery or radiation, but they need to have enough healthy liver left to do those kinds of things. So they shrink all the tumors as much as possible. They go in and surgically remove as much as possible, but you need to have enough healthy liver, like cancer-free liver, so that um, you'll survive while your liver grows back. And it grows, you know, your liver is six to seven pounds and it'll, you can cut like two pounds of your liver off and it'll grow back in four weeks. Mm. It's nuts. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing. Mm. But so I went through that process, got to a liver resection, was cancer free for about eight months. And then I've had recurrences since, but we're just, you know, we're on it. And uh, I get scans every eight weeks and I've got cancer right now and I'm doing chemo, which isn't a joke. I mean, um, that's actually the hardest part is every two weeks I basically take chemo and it's similar to being hungover uh, or like drinking. And for how long does it process? Is it like, is it like every two weeks you get hungover for a few days or is it yeah. two weeks that you feel hungover? It's, it's usually four days. So I'll do it on a Friday afternoon and then I'll just be sick through the weekend. And then sometimes I'm okay on Monday, but um, it really isn't out of my system until like Wednesday and, and it gets harder and harder in the beginning. You can kind of like plow power through things now. Um, you know, I'm physically compromised just cause I've done a lot of chemo. Mm-hmm. Uh, things come up. I, I've got chicken, chicken pox because if you had chicken pox when you were a kid before there's now, uh, everyone gets inoculated, but, um, in the seventies when I was a kid, I had chicken pox and you beat it and it, but it chicken, the virus actually lives in your muscles forever. And so when your immune system's compromised, just all kinds of shit goes out of whack for me, I got chicken pox and I'm 49. Right. Um, so, uh, it's not effort. I'm not making it sound like it's super easy and I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but, um, uh yeah thank you first of all thank you for for sharing that it's uh 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 uh, that was um i'm really grateful for for you being able to share that uh and then uh second of all is my 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 dad just went through leukemia and um and so yeah yeah so i had a i've had i've i've and so this uh, this is uh I just telling you about the, the breathwork business that I wanted to get started. And, and now I'm, and so there's something interesting I learned about what happened with my dad was that cause his, his immune system was also compromised for basically the space of a month and I couldn't go see him uh, uh, in, in the hospital. Oh, right. And so I, and I started to do zoom calls with him um, and started interviewing him about his life. And, uh, and, and that's actually, that's, that's the genesis of this podcast. Uh, one of the genesis of this podcast was, was me just interviewing him about his life. Cause we didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. Fortunately, he, he is, he's, he's here now and, it, and we're coming up on the two years mark, Mark, which is good. Um, but, uh, so I want to, I want to teach uh, breath work to people in, um, in, in compromised immune states who can't, uh, be in contact with other people. Um, and it's a, it, 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 it's an interesting business cause I can't, I've talked to a lot of people about it. I can't go through the doctors. I can't go through the nurses because then I'll need an eth- ethical review board, um, and all this different stuff. But if I can reach out and find the people with, yeah. uh, find the people with leukemia, it's just like Netflix, you know, they're using Netflix in those rooms. Um, so it's like, uh, yeah. why can't they do zoom? So that's, 
that's the big challenge I'm trying to figure out right now. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've, I've got to do podcast episodes with the leukemia foundation and, and, uh, and see if they can help me, help me get to get in, in contact with the actual people who are going through this stuff. But, um, but there's, uh, there's, so, so that's really, mm-hmm. sorry. So that's really interesting. So leukemia, so he was probably doing some sort of immunotherapy where it they was, just ripped his immune. It was chemo. Is that right? I believe it was chemotherapy. Or immune, oh, no, immunotherapy. No, no, it was radiation. Oh, radiation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look it up right well, now. Well, he was probably on, he was probably radiated and also some other immunotherapy or something that was compromising his immune system. And that's why they sequester people. Um, uh, and it's it's different per per cancer type, but but I agree that's totally. I mean, yeah, get get Zoom in the rooms. So, what do you think? Yeah, what's the hurdle? Uh, what's the hurdle on the on the, on the, uh, the the main hurdle is that uh, if I try to approach hospitals about having about them telling these patients about it, they would have to go through an ethical review board, which they were very unlikely to to approve. Uh, and so the that's huh. The main hurdle is that I can't I can't go through the doctors, but there's a bunch of people. So I've, yeah. I've gone on Facebook groups. I found all these support groups uh, for people with the type of cancer that my dad had. But there's also other people who would benefit from this as well. Agoraphobes, people who can't leave the house, um, uh, and and so anybody who's kind of in a state where they can't they can't uh, uh, they can't talk with other um, they can't be in the same room as other people or go outside. Um, but yeah, the main thing. Yeah, I, yeah the main the main. So I've got all these Facebook groups and the Leukemia Foundation. They have a podcast, so I'm I'm going to go interview them and then see if they want to if they want to do a uh, if they um, can I don't know advertise this. I'm going to do this part totally for free, um, and so I, I, I like uh, th- this will just be kind of like a a, a service type thing. Um, uh, so yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I personally think there's tons. I mean, the the hard part about building a business in in something like cancer is uh, um, these people are generally sick and don't have you know, like one of the most obvious thing to me was when I got sick was that um, as a society, we, how, what we do with people with chronic disease, such as diabetes or what cancer is now is first we let you go broke because, you know, just it's like even good health insurance now has a $6,000 a year, um, um, deductible. So anybody who's, even if they have in health insurance, they're signing up and that's just to pay for the medication. Like chemo is like a $9,000 a month bill. So you're on top. If you have insurance, you're, you're paying like a hundred thousand or something, but, um, but you're still like one, you can't work anymore. Like this is the crazy thing. Our health insurance is tied to our job, but if you actually get sick, you can't work. So you lose your health insurance. Like it's crazy. Mm. And all society just like, yep, work should be where you get your health insurance. But if you get sick, you can't work. It makes no sense at all. Mm. Yeah. Damn. And yeah. like, as a society, we're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's so interesting because it's like, because on, on, on one end, we, we have the best technology, like, like, uh, the woman you're the woman you found in New York, um, you know, like the, we have all these these innovative ways to do it, but they're all so expensive. So it's like, uh, so we're really good at making yeah. these innovative, expensive ways to cure these things. But then, uh, if somebody can't afford them, uh, then they're like, 
screwed. Um, and put yeah, it just, right. And the theory is that you know the first pass is always really expensive, and then it, you know the price comes down, and then um, you know even with what I have, like in theory. So I started. I have a project called HeyPump.com. If you go to HeyPump, H-A-I-P-U-M-P.com, all it is is an easy way for people to find hospitals that um, that do this, do what I have, do the HeyPump. Um, and my goal there was just onboarding. I get it. I want. I, and I, I'm 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 not. I'm in the middle of working on it. It's like something I do at like two in the morning. Um, but uh, the reason why it's not more popular is because it's surgically intensive. So you need a surgeon at your hospital to implant this thing. What we really want and what all medicine wants because of both margins, but also ease of distribution and scalability is a pharmaceutical solution. Like we just want people to be able to take a pill understandably, but there's so many things, but as a result, there's so many things that could be cured through other paths that aren't pharmaceutical that don't get cured because um, it doesn't scale. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I'm looking at it once. So you had to travel to another place because there's none in Missoula. You had to go to another place to do it, right? Yeah. And I go every month. I go to New York once a month to get it serviced and to see my oncologist or see Dr. Kemeny. So, I mean, think about the financials there, right? Like, and and I'm the boss, so I have a little bit of freedom with my schedule. I mean, I shouldn't probably, but you know, your average, I'm not that I'm not average, but you can't, um, if I was a, uh, a teacher or I worked at a tire store, right? Like I wouldn't have this option. It's awful. Um, and it's mostly bureaucratic, it's mostly bureaucratic, it's mostly insurance, like, HIPAA, like if we could all collectively upload our genetic data and not be worried about re repercussions. The reason we don't do that right now is because insurance companies will use it against us. Right? Like if I, if we all just made our genetic data or our health records public, the big problem is insurance companies would use it against us. There's not really any other issue there. Like, isn't that nuts? We could cure tons of diseases if we could collectively get this data and anonymize it, but even if not anonymize it. But we don't do that right now because insurance companies will use it against us. Mm. That's the reason we need privacy around medical. Mm. And you know, there's just tons of stuff like that that just has nothing to do with medicine, has nothing to do with best health. It's just a business model has gotten shoved into um, science. It's like a Leviathan that basically takes takes this and like creates warped initiatives or warped incentives. That's right. Yeah. That's right. really crazy. I'm, I'm going to send you in a, there's a great video that's coming out of UCSF, the uh, doctors who are looking at the connection between um, connective tissue, cancer, chronic pain and stretching. Um, so they're doing, um, it's only in animal models right now, but they're stretching uh, in order, uh, in, in order to show the effect of stretching on chronic pain and cancer. Um, and it turns out that the connective, be connective tissue bed under which um, cancer uh, grows in is really stiff. Uh, so if you can uh, stretch, and I don't mean this in the, like an hour long yoga class, I'm talking about five to 10 minutes of very light stretching every day. Um, uh, it can, wow. yeah, it can, it can kind of start to um, uh, 
move the the connective tissue matrix and 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 allow it to get more fluidity so that the the cancer has less place to grow. Uh, they look, they found that a lot of the connective tissue of uh, they found a lot of the cancer that grows in connective tissue, the tumors, uh, the connective tissue is very stiff. Um, so if you can loosen that connective tissue up, you can provide a more healthy environment for the cancer. Um, huh. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that, I mean, one, just people are getting like, there's been a 1% increase in colorectal cancer for people under the age of 40 every year since 2020. So anybody born in the nineties has like three times, it's three times more likely to have colorectal cancer than somebody born in the seventies, which is what I was. So there's like one, like society is creating cancer. Two, we're limiting the ways you can, you know, potentially cure it. We're, um, uh, we're not, you know, there's, there's tons of motion around integrative medicine around CBD and, you know, basically weed in general, but, also just physical things, you know, we just sit around, even our exercise now is like, we go do it in a box store with, with some exercise cycles. Well, like people just don't truly experience the world and in, in, in the, in the, like physically how we were supposed to as when we were back in the caves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's probably stretching like what you're saying, but it's really just being an animal in the world. Like we just don't move the way we used to move. We now like sidewalks. Like what the hell is a sidewalk? It's just, it's literally like, it's a four foot piece of cement that we all just travel on now or like roads. Like it's so not what we are physiologically built to do. And that's, that goes back to the um, adaptability part that we were talking about earlier is that, is that, yeah, in cities now are basically our, our hips have stopped adapting to multi-level terrain. Uh, and so if you, if you're, <laughs> if you're always on that, on that, on that I, flat thing, you're never having, forcing your hips and your ankles to adapt. Right. I tell instead we go ride, we, what are those things called? The ducks, those exercise machines, mm-hmm. like that's supposed to make up for it that we that we spend 45 minutes on this crazy contraption instead of actually just walking around in hills. Yep. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like I'm whining all the time. Like I actually think the future is amazing and, uh-huh. and I do think we're going to cure cancer. And I do think um, that our kids, you know, if we can stop going back to what you said originally about um, nationalism versus uh, well, basically people starting wars and killing each other on ideology um but a lot of for me a lot of this is coming it's just sort of the nature of the internet like for the first time people say millennials are like this or that they're actually the first group of people who literally can 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 communicate with millions of people almost effortlessly like you know, a hundred years ago, only Randolph Hearst could do what your average person can do on Twitter right now. Like say something and millions of people interact with it. And with that, you know, it's a learning process. Like it's a very powerful thing. I mean, my, my sense is my kids and younger people I know, like um, they actually feel like they have a voice. I mean, enough so that they actually try to say things like, um, you know, even the even politics, like the 
you know, the, the nature of the comment section is point counterpoint, right? It's just say Hegelian dialectics and, and just facilitating that the internet, letting people wake up and be like, well, I'm going to say something about Donald Trump, or I'm going to say something about people who don't look like me um, is it, 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 to me, that seems pretty obvious. Like that's what would happen if you suddenly gave everyone these, these tools and they're just learning how to use them. And as a society, we're learning how to like, what does it mean when people are shouting at each other? And they're not, I don't truly believe people hate each other the way the internet and the media describe. I, I like, I, I, I like everyone isn't in love with Trump or, uh, you know, anti, anti Fafa or whatever. You know, the, the majority of people are just people and the internet is built to facilitate point counterpoint, which creates this sort of chorus of, of craziness. But, when you actually meet people, no one's really like that. And, and I think that this generation is just, they just got this crazy tool and they're learning how to use it. And they spin and, and, and it's partially the tool's fault, but it's, it's, um, I think it's going to get better. Yeah. We're going to adapt and we're going to, we're going to, uh, yeah, right. yeah, like we're going to learn how to actually use this tool responsibly. That's what I'm, what I'm trying to do with everything I put out there on, on Twitter or Facebook is how do I, how do I use this tool that's trying to use me uh, in a way that spreads uh, uh, the antidote to, uh, to this attention misattribution or attention, uh, uh, the lack of focus that the um, certain uh, the parts of the system are really good at um, uh, co-opting and then moving towards monetary gain for large uh, companies with large ad, ad budgets. Um, <laughs> yeah, interesting. I agree. So I, I, we've got to wrap up now, but I uh, just thank you so much for, for, for sharing all of this and um, my thoughts and prayers are, are with you and, and, um, and, and how can people find out? So are you, are you guys hiring at Submittable? We are. If you go to Submittable slash jobs, um, there's, we're hiring developers, product people, salespeople. Um, we're at 109. Our goal is 240 by the end of 2020. So um, we're averaging seven new jobs a, a month. And yeah, um, Montana's amazing. If you ever want to live here and uh, there's other jobs here. So it's not, it's not it's like going back to what we said in the beginning. It's not like you're taking a massive gamble by coming with us um, or joining us. Um, so I hope to see your resume. And then, um, and then uh, for people, if somebody it does have cancer in their life in this particular type of cancer, how can they find out more about that? The, your other side? Well, for, so that's just heypump.com. Um, but, but really, if you, if you are truly, you know, if you have stage four colorectal cancer, or you have stage four anything, um, there's a great, there's great um, community groups, one's called Colon Town, if you go to colontown.org that facilitates a bunch of Facebook groups, really, really niche, they call them neighborhoods, but like ones around like clinical trials that are specific to your, your, your um, genetic uh, makeup, ones around things like K-Pump, ones around Y90, which is another liver specific uh, um, um, treatment. And so Colon Town's amazing. You know, there's fightcolorectalcancer.org uh, is a great organization. There's tons of like support things, um, and my 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 product isn't really or my platform isn't really there yet. But um, uh, but it's got my email on it. If anyone wants to reach out and just 
if they're confused or under duress. And, um, so much, it's such a disorienting feeling when you wake up and someone tells you you're going to be dead in six months. Um, and, uh, and it's usually not the case. Mm. Um, and also it's starting to get on online. And if you Google stage four colorectal cancer, you're, it's a pretty bleak um, set of results. And, um, and it's not the case. It doesn't have to be the case. None of us are statistics. We, uh, um, there's, there's always hope and there's always something you can do. Um, is, there, is there a even, test that, that under like 30, 40, cause it sounds like this is a unique thing that's happened to a lot of people under the age who normally wouldn't go through cancer screening. Do you know if there's any cancer screening that's available to, to, to young people? Well, that's right. So historically, insurance companies would only, um, the American Cancer Society recommended everyone over 50 get a, colon, a colonoscopy, start getting colonoscopies every, every two or three years after 50. They've lowered that age to 45. But um, generally, if you see bleeding down there, or if you're fatigued and you don't know why, or you're just, your food stops tasting great, like, um, get it checked out. Because if you catch it early, it's 100% curable almost stage one is so curable but if it gets once it bounces out of your liver or out of your colon um it's it's not curable at all so um but even when i say that that's the facts those are the that's, those are statistics that it's not curable after stage four but hundreds thousands of people are living perfectly not perfect lives but they're living with stage four colorectal cancer and and thriving and um and it's just a matter of sort of settling in figuring out your treatment and and figuring out how to have a life with with this this other thing you do is your dad up and walking now is he like yeah he's back and uh, we've been going fishing and that's part of the huge reason i've been going fishing with him is is because now i've gotten this kind of like second lease which is amazing about about modern medical science it's like that it, it actually does uh uh, it's giving hope uh, to certain things. I have a lot of problems with medical science in terms of chronic issues that are that are uh, uh, not necessarily what they say they are. But man, in terms of cancer, in terms of acute things, like it is so good, uh, and I'm so thankful to it for it because now my dad is still alive. Because yeah. Of so, yep. Yeah, I mean, they say so, so. Immunotherapy, which I bet your dad did a combination of radi radiation and immunotherapy. So immunotherapy has sort of really started to like mm. get momentum things like Keytruda you see it on TV now but even five years ago it was you know it's it's 150 there's an amazing book called The Breakthrough by Charlie Graber I highly recommend anybody interested in the history of immunotherapy because it's a fascinating immunotherapy is tricking your body into um, mm. uh, doing what it's supposed to do and they they're they're documented cases from like the 1880s in New York in like hell's kitchen type environments where somebody has like a massive tumor on their neck and the doctor somehow like gets pig blood on it, you know, something that, that stimulates the immune system and the immune system just eats the tumor. Like that's, that, that is immunotherapy. That's like what is happening is when you're, you, cancer is your body forgetting that there's something or not noticing something horrible is going on. And letting that happen, letting it re replicate. But I mean, in theory, your immune system should be like, oh, that that's cancer. We should go kill that. But it doesn't. But th thank you so much. And, uh, and uh, uh, 